0: Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susanne Echidon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't people who bring their full selves to work, and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well, and might even generate better numbers.
1: Today, I am delighted to be joined by Philip Pozzo di Borgo Oliver. Philip, you are most welcome <laughs> to Life Beyond the Numbers.
2: Well, thank you, Susan. I, I'm delighted to uh, be contributing in some small way to uh, a great conversation that we started um, some weeks ago now and uh, very fortuitous met. In fact, um, we were talking about, I think, um, innovation for finance professionals and there was some sort of oblique connection, but I'm d- delighted. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's very kind.
1: Yeah, no, it's great. I love that. I love like LinkedIn, how I think you commented on a post, then we had a conversation and now here we are doing a recorded one. And (laughs) you just never know who you're going to meet, which is a wonderful part of life.
2: Indeed, yes, yes, exactly. And these conversations, as, as we were saying earlier on, are uh, are kind of meant to be, in in a sense, overheard, aren't they? And uh, and grab people's attention, no matter what sort of angle or or kind of item uh, it catches their interest. We don't know
1: exactly. And uh, that <laughs> sounds like we're putting a bit of a pressure on ourselves now. <laughs> no, 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 no
2: pressure. No pressure. <laughs>
1: well, I, back to LinkedIn, because mm. on your LinkedIn profile, Philip, you describe your work life as having two themes. And th- mm. this really struck me. So tell me what those are, tell the listeners what those themes are and how they became your themes.
2: Well, so it's an interesting question. Uh, and you asked some great questions, if I may say. But uh, I, I think that what I found useful coming back to LinkedIn was, I guess we have to curate ourselves these days, don't we? Um, I mean, we kind of decide what we say, what we don't say, which is both a good and a bad thing. But it does give us a pause to, I guess, to think a little bit about what what we really want to tell the world about what we do, what we stand for, and so on. But LinkedIn is interesting. And so my profile when I was writing this, and I've rewritten this so many times, as, as I'm sure we all have, was It was kind of looking for themes, you know, just trying to tell my story and I told it in one way and then another way. And then I began to realize that actually adventure and innovation are the two areas that I guess keep coming up in my life in different ways. And, and let me say that adventure, let me begin there, um, is not adventure with a capital A and it's not um, backpacking in Tibet as much as I would love to do that, but it's kind of accidental really. Um, I was born in Singapore and the first four years of my life were, were spent there because my father was in the Royal Navy at the time and he was posted there with my mom. We um, were there for four years so my first formative years, of which I don't remember very much, but I'm sure my life is, is sort of colored by that and, and then a kind of a meander if if i can describe this briefly from singapore back to the uk when my father was reposted and then left the royal navy at the time at my mother's request he set up a business and my mother soon had enough of that and the, the life that required her to actually um, get involved in running that and and so soon they were looking for an opportunity in another navy in, in south africa so in, in about 1975 we ended up going to uh, South Africa to Cape Town, Simonstown in particular, where my father was starting a new chapter of his life, really. And that kind of took us to a whole new world and a whole new culture, which I spent another 35 years in, which was amazing. What I haven't said is my mother is uh, French and my father is English. So already there was a strange sort of um, dynamic going on, and, and growing up in, in South Africa was to. Uh, in the middle of apartheid and and through the dismantling of apartheid ultimately into 1994 but the memory living in a world where toilets were segregated on the station you'd have you'd have toilets for african people for white people and this was normal as normal as you might expect it to be but so so for me Already, my adventures were interesting. I started university in Cape Town, had a, a, an amazing time um, there and ended up joining De Beers Marine, which was, a, uh, which was a, a very pioneering part of the De Beers diamond. And I guess that took me through various twists and turns. But ultimately, I started my life as an engineer, but was involved in high precision underwater navigation. So lots of maths, lots of technical stuff, um, some exciting pioneering times, really, because we were exploring the entire coast of west africa and looking for diamonds that had been washed down by the orange river the orange river was sampling those diamonds from the interior from the kimberley area so these big pipes if you like diamond pipes which you might know about and it was washing those diamonds down into the sea and and the the sea was reworking them on the ancient coastline and so you would end up with these deposits and our mission was really to go and find them, identify them, locate them, mine them profitably. And it was all sort of the the time that I joined the Beers Marine was just out of university. In fact, not even quite out of university because I left after my father died just before I turned 21 and went into this working environment that was just fascinating. Uh, You had Dutchmen, you had Englishmen, you had South Africans, you had people from everywhere and from all disciplines applying their minds to extracting diamonds from sediment anything up to sort of five meters deep under 100 meters of of water and so we were trying all kinds of things and we borrowed technologies from different countries and different industries uh, oil and gas for example and so um it was a fun time it was a really wonderful time and I, i i was really privileged to work with some people who i i retrospect respectively realized we were just wonderful leaders and super inspiring in their own way uh, and gave us freedom, all of us, to explore, to explore careers, to explore things of interest. And uh, yeah, it was a very rich and, and, and deeply meaningful time in my life
1: amazing i have never heard of most of what you've just said before <laughs> about the it's a bit niche <laughs> yeah but mining of yeah. the the sea for diamonds that's that's quite inc- does it still go on
2: yes it does yeah and certainly at the time uh, and i'm going back now sort of 20 years really but that was really as i said very pioneering but in fact we, we realized that These were all kind of gem quality stones that we were mining at the time and uh, a good size, you know, it's almost three quarters of a carat. It's just a wonderful. I think what captures the the time was I remember a couple of years forward where we were already systematizing and making this more of a repeatable process, this mining and extraction business, a very large drill ship that was brought across from oil and gas from the North Sea converted into a, a drilling ship. So this drilling ship would literally have, a, if you imagine a long bits like a long drill bit with a flat plate at the end and sort of a suction device, and you would literally be sucking sediment up and you would be processing all of this on board. And I remember one day being invited down because I was the surveyor. This was my metier my, my as it were. So I was uh, in charge of production reporting, but also the high precision underwater navigation side of things, figuring out where we were and, and where we'd been mining. and so. I was invited one day to go down to the hand-sorting final stage of, of this process. And, and it was quite literally, it was just diamonds in the dark. It was the most surreal thing. If you can imagine, picture some sort of Quentin Tarantino film and they're in a massive warehouse or a big hangar and it's all dark and you've got a wooden table that just is this rickety thing, sort of four feet by two feet. And there were six of us crowded around this table, some burly security folks and the captain and myself, and we're doing a hand sort of these diamonds. And it was just the most extraordinary thing, you know, for a young man, I was probably about 23 or 24 at the time. And just looking at this tray of diamonds that looked really like broken glass, you know, a braided glass in a sense, they didn't look anything like the things we we of course see on on cut jewellery. But... But it was just wonderful. And I I guess it captures just how strange it was um, that we were all kind of just hanging around this this table talking about these diamonds. I must have represented millions of uh, dollars worth of uh, product. But um, yeah, it was a strange old time. And I think it really ignited the second part of my passion. So the theme of innovation and constantly in myself, I recognized quite early the desire to to always think how can we do this differently how can we do this better you know how can we make this simpler and yeah so looking back (laughs) in that curated linkedin way probably the beginning of my 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 deep interest in in business improvement and and in innovation
1: amazing isn't it before we started recording we were talking about how people's backstories inform who they are today and how they show up in the world and I would never have known any of this and how you got into what you do and it brings things to life in ways that you see people differently because you get like wow between the travel the adventure but also playing with the earth's resources in a in such a different way and like you said figuring out how to do that and how to do it better and how to make it systematize it and all of that because innovation has become one of those buzzwords that we tend to kind of go oh god here we go again we've got to innovate yeah yeah so you know what is it really what is innovation or what does it mean to innovate
2: so that's a wonderful question i if i continue my through through please the do the adventure theme and, and, and mitted up with the innovation piece i i, because I you're
1: not distracting me from the, you know, the real answer
2: <laughs> no i won't i won't i promise i'll return to this um but it's a wonderful question and it's a question that uh trips us up because i dare say Whilst it's important, and and I'm I'm going to almost contradict myself, I I think it's vitally important to have an answer to that question. And equally, it's not important to have an answer to that question. And I'll I'll explain why why, why I say that. I hope so. So so fast forward through a career at, at De Beers, which took eventually to the Johannesburg head office, where I set up a business improvement team. And that business improvement team was based on things that I'd learned and heard of. In the oil and gas industry around performance improvement. These were techniques, these were methods of performance coaching that were kind of what I used to call industrial performance coaching. So it's kind of on the ground, hands-on, very much in the workplace. And trying to help help people bring, you know, deliver their best every every day. And so that took me to an opportunity in Scotland where I'm speaking to you from in Edinburgh now, and a career in oil and gas, as it happened there, I started off with this performance improvement focus. And and accidentally, I came across someone who who now with her husband make up and together the three of us make up uh, Eureka Europe, our our innovation, training business um, based in the UK. But the definition I came to having spent part of my oil and gas career in the business improvement space and, and latterly in innovation as, as the, the innovation manager for a large energy services company in the EMEA region, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Mm. This question was fundamental because I had the opportunity to run this team to, to basically pick up the, the baton, if you'd like, from a predecessor and assume this pretty important role in the organization. But I wasn't ever trained for innovation. I I didn't know what innovation meant. And I did what every reasonable person would do and certainly every engineer would probably do is go look for the books. (laughs) I've got a number of them on my shelf here. And I would read and read and ask questions and see what the latest thinking is. And it was singularly unsatisfying, because I think that this can be overthought and there is no lack of literature on the subject of what innovation is or what indeed it should be and most of it comes from business school and most of it is worthy of contemplation but actually not particularly helpful
1: <laughs> that's so diplomatic <laughs>
2: Well, so I think the important point is 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 that these are all maybe useful to a d- degree, but they are not actually practical. And so the Damascus moment I had, Susan, when the penny really dropped for me, my aha moment for innovation and understanding what it meant was actually after I no longer was in that role and I was actually running my own business as a consultant and business improvement consultant. And I heard my now partner, Helen Potter, speaking at the Institute of Directors, and she had a lunch and learn session that I went to and thought, well, it sounds interesting. I'm always intrigued by innovation. I'm gonna go find out what this is all about. And 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 so we come to this moment, Susan, <laughs> where we define innovation. And it was a slide she put up, and it was a little, effectively, a little formula that was comprised of three parts. And it said, innovation or effective innovation is effectively made up of three things. But before we get to those three things, the definition is that innovation needs to be meaningfully unique.
1: Ooh.
2: That's it. Meaningfully unique. Now that in itself may not blow your hair back, but <laughs> meaningfully unique, when you think about this a wee bit, is, is meaningful to whom? To somebody. And it's meaningful, we think, in our world, to three parts. It's the person or people, the team that's involved in the innovation project or the idea. Mm-hmm it's got to be meaningful to the organization that is to say it's got to play a part in advancing the strategy or the business objectives and if it doesn't then whatever you're doing let's face it is just either pure r d research which has its place or is actually counterproductive and is a waste of your organization's money and of course the third and final party to whom this has to be meaningful is the customer the marketplace right and and that's true whether it's business to business because you you never sell to a company you're always selling to a person in the, in the organization you know, so someone has to buy someone has to believe someone has to understand what it is you're, you're putting across so meaningful super super key but also unique um because unique for us means new and different a new and different again like all these things exists on the spectrum and the definition is elegant, it's beautiful in its own way, because it doesn't mean that if you're doing business improvement in your own organisation and your own processes, it doesn't have a place, it doesn't mean that the definition is no longer valid, not at all. It just means that the scope of what's meaningful, the scope of what's new and different is something else. And so, for me, looking back at what I was trying to do in my organisation at the time in oil and gas as an innovation manager, would have been so much clearer, had I had that definition as a starting point and of course it needs much more else to go with it but that was the beginning for me. I
1: mean there's so many things going around in my head and I'm thinking about things that have come to the market you know that are meaningful unique to me as a user or where I've worked and things have been new and different but it also feels like there's a difference between improving a process or innovating and a lot of places I guess are business improvement think that they're innovating yeah but you know what i mean there's a difference between improvement and innovating
2: yeah yes there is and 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 again if we if we simply say that it's first of all it doesn't matter And and again, this is part of where we get tripped up in this whole thing of innovation, etc. Does it fall into box A or box B? Well, if we say it's on a spectrum and there are degrees of it, then we can kind of sidestep that conversation. What's really important is to say, what is it that you're trying to do? What is the mission for these ideas that you wish to have? Is the mission we want to make our existing invoicing process more efficient? Super. That's quite clear. But on the other hand, is it, is it cutting-edge stuff? Is it sort of on the horizon? Is it working with absolutely you know, emerging technologies? Is it working with artificial intelligence, for example? And, and, and that's also absolutely fine. The originator of this definition is a man called Doug Hall, who, after 35 years, 40 years of initially working at Procter & Gamble and having a stellar career as a master inventor, went on to become a TV and celebrity innovation guru. He's based in Cincinnati in the US and had a career in that, in that role, in that mold as the, as the go-to guru and fated in, in all kinds of magazines, etc., cetera, Financial Times and, and various other places. There's a long list of, of achievements behind that. But the conclusion he came to after a good number of years of making a lot of money and, and making a lot of clients very happy was actually it's not enough to be the guy who's going to help organizations to innovate. What he wanted to do was to actually codify all of this, so that anybody can innovate. And and whether it's on the the high tech end of the spectrum, or whether it's on the business improvement end, it doesn't matter. He, he realized that what he understood and what he knew, and that this practice you know, Procter and Gamble initially, and subsequently with the likes of Nike and Kimberly Clark and Disney and so on, was that this could be taught this could be scaled. This was something anybody can learn any organization can pick up. And so he 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 codified it literally he he pulled this together as a fully documented um, approach to innovating in the way I've described all the way from having those ideas for getting those ideas big and bold ones to communicating those ideas, shaping them, making them accessible to members of your team so they understand what they're signing up for, making them clear to your investors because they're gonna spend money with you and ultimately taking them to a commercial reality, to bringing them into the real world. And wrapped all around that was this question of how you lead innovation and the role of the leader in that, in creating a culture that supports it because we can all be kind of one hit wonder and come up with a good idea once and maybe if we're lucky take that to market and if we're lucky make that successful but how do you do that year after year how do you do that several times a year and moreover how do you get your team to do that when you are no longer just a a two or three or four foot person organization and you scale up so these are questions that doug hall has answered
1: yeah and if you're not moving forward There's no such thing as standing still, really. You're going backwards. So to move forward, you need to be thinking, what's coming next? What am I changing? What am I creating? How am I innovating? And for all of that, like you say, it's the leadership, isn't it? And it's the leadership of probably empowerment. It's that culture of autonomy for ideas to come from anywhere.
2: Yeah 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 it, it, exactly susan and i, I always um, like to say that every organization indeed um, every family <laughs> has a culture whether you know it or not whether you like the culture you have or not it's there and how much better might it be if we could be intentional about the culture that we wish to create when i was reflecting on my LinkedIn profile and thinking about the stories I wanted to tell. Part of that reflection, if you will, was uh, helped along by a mate of mine, um, Chris Patton, who was the, the leader behind and the inspiration behind um, a book that, that he pulled 19 others together, including myself and, and himself. So 20 author book together called Purposeful People. And what he was asking us to tell was our own stories about ourselves, a little like we're discussing today. And, and it got me thinking about my culture, what inspired me to look for adventure and to be interested in innovation. And I mentioned, career wise to be as marine to be as being an amazing place for fostering all of that. But going back further, I realised that actually, my dad who was in, in the Royal Navy and took us to Singapore and, and, and a number of places including um, Cape Town was Was in many ways that that guy you know that person who made it happen for me because he allowed me to try different things whether it was scouting whether it was uh judo trying different clubs and not always succeeding but he would never deride anything i tried and i remember one day Gosh, I must have been about nine. There was this bookcase in this playroom where where I where all my stuff was. And I remember saying, Dad, can you help me? Can I help me? I like, take this, this bookcase, this big heavy wooden bookcase. And I'm going to turn it upside down uh, vertically. And I said, Well, Phil, what are you gonna do now? So I said, Well, look, I'm gonna get all my books and I'm gonna label them and um, I'm gonna stack all the shelves and I'm gonna rent these books out to my to my mates so I kind of created a little mini library so there I was trying to rent these books out to my mates at five uh, South African cents per book or per week or something anyway complete financial business disaster but nonetheless and had great fun and it was it was those kinds of things and I had a little detective agency I was reading obviously too much Alfred Hitchcock uh, three investigators (laughs) I spent so much of my my childhood pocket money on maps and books and systems and all kinds of strange, and wonderful things, but had so much fun with my mates doing that, that I realized he was a man who was quite a hard taskmaster to his, to his sailors and to his men, uh, men and women in the Navy. And yet, you know, he was, he was, he allowed me a lot of latitude, he allowed me to play, he allowed me to think, he allowed me to try and fail. and without being critical uh, as well and so he made it a safe place for for thoughtful experimentation if i can put a sort of a slightly technical phrase on it and that meant that it was okay so i have grown up and and i still to this day as you can probably hear my voice get excited about stuff that even might be tangential (laughs) to what i'm really looking to do but because because well Uh, and my eyes have just settled on the quote which I keep to the side of my computer here from T.S. Eliot uh, from Little Gidding and the quote is we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time and when I first came across that some years back I thought yeah that that works that resonates with me. I get that, because we don't know what we don't know. So when we start with something, and that's the, perhaps the coming back to the full arc of innovation that's practical, it's that the stuff we teach in, in what we call innovation engineering, which is this method that Doug Hall articulated and documented. It, it's practical, because he'd be the first person to say, "You don't know what you don't know, So get started and learn something." learn something. So we only learn something when we say, I have a hypothesis, I've got an idea, I'm going to do this. And I think that if I do this, then I'm going to see these results. So I go and try and whatever the results are, I have to then reflect on them. And I have to study them and I have to decide, well, was I right? Was I wrong? What else did I learn? And so we reshape what we thought and we come back to the starting point, we come back to the, the beginning of our exploration. And we see things again, as if for the first time, and, and that is it. It's not that difficult. It's not rocket science, but it is science in its own way.
1: It's not rocket science. I get that it's science, but a lot of what you're saying there is about the atmosphere or back to that word culture you yeah. use. Because I've been in organizations where leaders are not interested in ideas that have to be figured out. So they almost want that end result guaranteed, otherwise it's a waste of time. So what that does is I think it, it brings about more of an atmosphere of fear or an atmosphere of saying yes to the leader's idea, which is probably, there is nothing, what was the word? Nothing meaningfully unique about in the first instance. That's what maybe gives it a bad name or a buzzword feel to it because what you're talking about you know creativity is the lifeblood of our economies our organizations and for that to happen you have to be in a safe place
2: yeah exactly that's exactly right and and so we talk and again leadership is not unlike innovation not in the sense that what does it mean what is leadership right and it can be so overcomplicated. and on a different point Uh, A shout out to uh, Steve Ratcliffe, who who I I have a high regard for as a leader of leaders and a teacher or a coach to leaders and his simple, simple formulation of leadership as create a future that people can believe in, engage, get them to buy into that and have the conversations that support and, and reinforce that and deliver focus on the things and enable culture of delivery and that little future engaged delivery model is a fantastic a leadership a conversation in its own right which i would encourage people to go and find out more about but but to do your point a culture of innovation it, it's almost if we if we again let's unpack that let's let's make let's take away this, this sort of the opaqueness behind what that really means and make this really really practical I have had the privilege of working with some wonderful wonderful leaders over the years and they've all been enablers they've all been humble in their own way they might have been extremely you know successful and perhaps um, indeed on some occasions very bold and indeed perhaps outspoken and maybe proud in their own respects but would it mattered, they would they would probably say these three you know i don't know the answer to the question and to the innovation challenge that we face right and As a result i need help i need your help i need the team's help i need other people to step up here and help and and let me just really make this clear i fail a lot in other words i when i try stuff i don't always get it right and i don't always get it right first time so if a leader can have the humility and the intentionality to to, 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 to voice that to evidence that in the workplace in their organization around their team. then I think a wonderful thing happens because Doug Hall studied over two years with something like 6000 different teams, what it takes to have big and bold ideas. And he discovered that there are three factors. The three things you need are first of all, what he calls stimulus, which is if you like the spark, um the creative spark for an idea and and that itself can come from any number of sources it can come from your customers it can come from your people it'll come from totally unrelated stuff but you need that as a starting point and no one i think would disagree with that but what really throws the, the fuel on that f- spark or really provides that the, if you like the, the environment for that spark to turn into a flame and, and actually ignite things is is diversity and, and I really would you know, emphasize this is diversity of experience. This is diversity of um, gender, of course. It's neurodiversity, which is something that we probably, and I'm certainly just beginning to learn uh, more about in the context of my own family and, and, and someone who's quite neurodiverse that's close to me. And so what joy can we get from collaborating with others and getting stimulus from them? So, so it's an exponential So stimulus with diversity is an exponential um, equation. But the bad guy, the thing that diminishes all of our effort and reduces your culture of innovation is fear. And it's fear of experimentation, right? It's a fear of if I try this, I remember what happened the last time I spoke up or I had an idea. I got the funny look from the boss (laughs) Or, or i got the rolling eyes from my colleagues or maybe they didn't actually dismiss it out of hand and maybe we tried something but what happened actually in the organization when we didn't achieve our goals oh project got shut down hmm what does that mean and so fear is the the thing we can intentionally dial down and we can give permission to try. And we can have a response as a leader that's encouraging and that's actually affirming and that says, well, the most important thing I need from you, Phil, right now is I need you to tell me what you learned from that. So whatever happened, what did you learn? And, and, And the next question I'm going to ask you, Phil, is what are you going to do next? Right? What's the next cycle of learning? And a wonderful thing, again, to this whole thing of innovation being so overthought is that actually, we just need to go and run experiments that are you know, designed to learn something and to do rapid cycles in hours or days, perhaps weeks, rather than months and quarters, which is the traditional <laughs> approach in corporate life, certainly, to running innovation projects. And we know from a considerable database of research projects and innovation projects in the Innovation Engineering um, Institute, that projects that go through a typical corporate process end up losing on average about 50 percent of their value so that's down to the culture that's down to playing it safe that's down to not having an understanding of how you de-risk innovation and de-risk an innovation project because it's going to be what is it going to be it's going to be meaningfully unique which means that there's going to be new and different and new and different means people are going to be going that sounds crazy. That sounds mad. We can't do that. Well, how are we going to possibly achieve that? So, so again, how we attend to this question of fear, how we encourage it, how we make space for it, how we encourage learning, how we uh, fuel collaboration, these are the jobs of a leader, and a leader that has humility. And as I say, in in, in the chapter I wrote for for purposeful people is this is in the deep tissue of leading, it's the fabric of leadership. It's what makes a leader really a leader, in, in my view, in, uh, at least in the context of innovation.
1: There's a lot of food for thought in there. And you say in the field of innovation, but what you talk about, the humility, the I don't know, I need help, I feel lots. But you can apply that pretty much to any part of the organisation. So actually it's the traits that you're looking for that lend themselves to to holding space for whether it's an issue in HR or with people and performance or whether it's innovation or fraud or I don't know whatever it might be it's having that curious approach that I suppose it's the growth mindset isn't it it's it's growing your people with your business that lends itself to this,
2: yes, wonderfully put, Susan. That's exactly it. It's exactly that. And realizing that we, we, there's the cliche of people, with the most important asset in the business, and and well, it, it's not. Is it? it's people are the business, and that's it. And it doesn't matter if it's AI or, or anything else that that is running the back end. But someone had to design it. Someone had to set it up.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, that's so simple. Like people are the business. That might be my new catchphrase, uh, Philip. <laughs> <laughs> no but when you think about it you're not yeah the machines do so much but only from the instructions of people and to get ai to do what we want to do we have to be able to innovate ai isn't going to tell us how to best organize it or to make it meaningful what was the word meaningfully unique you know so
2: yeah and there's some wonderful why... reflections, lectures by the way going on at the moment just on this topic of ai i don't know if you if you
1: mm no of, i haven't
2: yeah the wonderful um wreath lecturers i think Oh gosh i forget who it is but um doing doing an amazing job on that so I, I would i would check that out as well but 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 you're so right susan and right now in covert times when we listen to the debate as i'm sure you you have about remote working and whether this is a flash in the pan whether there's a phase whether we go back to whatever normal is supposed to mean i i've had some some big dinner party conversations with friends of ours on one hand our our friend uh, said um to us the other night well oh this you know people need to go back in the office people need to go back into the office because it's too hard and leaders just need to have their people in there and and so on and and i said well i totally disagree i don't disagree that there are jobs that are required that require being in the office this is another conversation but the point i want to make is what's happened is that the job of the leader is now in sharp focus Because you cannot run a distributed organization that works without being a more intentional leader in my view. You have to be more thoughtful because all the cues, most of the cues are missing. The the daily, the cliché again, the water cooler talks, etc. But being able to walk into an office, spot someone that doesn't look quite comfortable or happy about something and going over to them and having a conversation. Doing all those things, understanding what makes people tick, coming right back to the start of our conversation, Susan, your podcast helping people understand or, or peek into other people's work life existence, their backstories. We we have to know these things. We have to be sensitive to this. We have to know what's going on behind the closed door of their rooms or their offices, etc. And and so the leader's work is harder, perhaps, but it is more. It, it, what it does is it demands more from them. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity, actually. Whatever the long-term change in our society is, I think that it's a great opportunity for people to to step up and actually be more thoughtful about the culture that they want to create.
1: Mm, And you're right, there's a spotlight on that role of leadership in a way that isn't any longer just about profit. And for many, many, many eons now, it's been profit first. And, of course, you need to make a profit. But it's your people that are making the profit for you. And if they're happy, then they will make more profit. Yeah. And you can't just keep an eye on the numbers because the numbers don't make the decisions. They don't do the work. The people people do. Yeah. yeah. life beyond those numbers. And, and. Yeah, that, that's really changing, actually. I think that spotlight is moving from, well, how are you intentionally designing workplaces or yeah. hybrid working or whatever it might be to help people give their best?
2: Uh, you, totally. And it, it really comes back to how you design a workplace and also how you design work, right? So, So now you have to set the mission. You have to say, I'm not even going to see you for most of today, or indeed most of this week, Phil, so here's the deal, right, we're going to stack hands on this mission. So this week, we need to achieve these outcomes, you figure out how to do it. Right? I'm leveraging your creativity, what you bring to this company, this, this project, this game. That's what I want you here for. So. That's what I want from you. And you're gonna collaborate. You're gonna do, you're gonna behind the scenes, you're gonna to speak to the right people. You're gonna look outside the organization, do whatever you need to do. And do you know what? I'm gonna make this a safe space for for us to learn and to contribute and to do all this good stuff. And, and and I'm talking probably more here in the context of innovation, but it applies, as you say, to anything we wish to do with our teams when we work remotely or in a hybrid way.
1: And I think as well, just thinking back to what you say about play, Philip. And as a kid, we did all of this, and we did yeah. it naturally. We tried things, throwing books yeah, yeah, yeah. upside down, and did whatever. <laughs> and you know what we all did: we made things out of things. They fell apart. We tried again. We built. We rebuilt. We consulted with friends and neighbors and uncles and aunts. And maybe some of us produced something, and maybe some of us didn't. But. We learned those skills and yet when we're at work, there's so much pressure on us to know the answer.
2: Ah, uh, Yes, I- exactly. That's right. And, and well, I think you're, you're absolutely right, Susan. It's the leader who sets the tone. And if, if you can say that and admit that you don't have all the answers, then you, I think that's an invitation for others to step up and to start leveraging what they bring to your company, to your, to your project.
1: Mm. Yeah. And it, it is possible. That's the thing. And, <laughs> and you know, and what you say, you, you, the, like what Doug Hall has done and how you set it out, it's what any business should be doing anyway, you know, to have right. that, Stimulus for ideas, diversity of yeah. thinking, and minimizing fear. I mean, like the <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, and 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 it, you know, t- so I shouldn't minimize, I guess, that the fact that there are forty eight skills behind what I've kind of very hastily kind of outlined as as this thing called innovation engineering that they call documented and uh, codified and has evolved over time. So, so there is structure, but it's freedom in a framework, as we as we like to say, because. It, it, it's not about a piece of software. It's not about not doing a kind of having a kind of gated system or not having a particular front end to capture all, all your ideas. It, it's not about uh, throwing stuff out. It's actually just about saying, do you know what? There is something that you can overlay on the way you work that has been thought through, that has been tested and tried and works and and is not complicated and can be learned. <laughs> and, and everyone in your organization or certainly those that you need to be Able to do this can finally learn how to innovate consistently well for reliable results that are meaningfully unique, and that's what excites me and what gets me out of bed every day.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I can hear it in your voice. And absolutely, I mean, the simplicity I think are not complex for me. That doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah, just because it's simple, it doesn't mean it's easy. Well put. But to be able to conceptualise it means then you can approach it and that's why ideas need to be simple but, but what goes on in the background is never easy <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly yeah we, we, we love to talk about um uh, a concept as you shape your idea into a concept it, it should be um it should be impossible to misunderstand and to make that really clear what we say is 12 year old should be able to understand what you say you know and and I think we obscure so much with yeah we just use language that kind of makes things um, bigger or more exciting than what they, they really are. However, clarity counts for for a lot. If, certainly, if you want an investor to to, <laughs> to back your business, right?
1: That's so funny. I know you you like to write poetry, but what 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 came up for me there? I'm going to just add this in as you were we were talking about simplicity and and overcomplicating things and and the language we use and everything. I can remember mm. when I was about. 14 or 15 in school and the English teacher was a parent teacher meeting and the English teacher told my parents that Yeats, famous Irish poet, would turn in his grave (laughs) in the way that I described his poetry because I made it too simple and too common. And at the time, that like stopped me from writing and doing stuff for years, you know, really like thinking I don't know how to express myself. But actually, I learned that I was able to take complicated things and make them simple.
2: And what a wonder and what an incredibly powerful skill that is. Yeah, yeah.
1: But it was Uh, discouraged. Yeah. And that's really interesting as well. And we get a lot of this stuff as well that we bring into workplaces with us that we've had from our upbringing that also shadow as well as promote.
2: Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're so right. Yeah. Our
1: backstories so- do matter. So, Philip, we are nearly done. And we won't go to the poetry or the writing, but I really want to hear about underwater hockey because I have never heard about that before. A high
2: school environment where we had a, a swimming pool that was outdoors and not covered up. Yeah, we had a, a teacher who was a guidance teacher as well as a, a sports teacher. He took various things, and he he loved this thing called underwater hockey, right? And and so I was I loved swimming and diving as I still do. I'm a big water baby, as is my wife, and um, we. So we yeah, I just. Tried this sport and and I, I kind of got into it in literally maybe in the last sort of year or so of my school career. It's a crazy thing. It's got to be probably the most boring thing to watch uh, as, a, as a spectator sport. It doesn't really work unless you're underwater with a, with a scuba tank or there's a sort of a window onto the swimming pool. But it's such fun. You sort of six aside, and you have a you have a, a hockey stick that's effectively a piece of marine ply about a foot and a half long with a curve to it. And you are literally driving with a, a pair of um, goggles and a snorkel, and that's it underwater, probably you know, three, four meters down, you're driving this <laughs> weighted pack along the, the bottom of a swimming pool to, to eventually try and fling it into a, into a goal on the other side. And, and the thing is, right, there's a lot of strategy involved. But of course, Breath, breath holding is a is a key skill there, and um, timing it is key. So it, you've got to get your waves that you send your your, your two or three people to follow in behind. the crew that's driving the puck that's going to be coming up to the surface so yes it's a real thing it is a thing loved it and uh, probably wish that i I played uh, a lot more of it but uh... (laughs) there's not much of
1: that going on in scotland i'd say is there
2: well you say that i think i think there is actually there's a squad at uh, edinburgh university if i'm not mistaken
1: and philip just back to that book again um, a lovely book called purposeful people now i haven't read all the chapters in it yet but maybe you just say a few words about that as well, because I think some of our listeners might be interested in it.
2: Wonderful. Well, well, thank you, Susan. So, so, purposeful people was compiled by Chris Patton, an ex um, Royal Marine, wonderful, wonderful man with um, a great vision. And uh, the subtitle of purposeful people is business leaders making a difference. um there are twenty of us in this book from different walks of life and different um, careers. To be honest, uh, that that all tell some of our backstory and 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 talk about what's meaningful. To, to us personally often professionally too and how these things of course um, connect
1: yeah they're inextricably linked aren't they they really are and I think that's the beauty if you can combine your passion with your your work it just brings color to the adventure and innovation in your life
2: <laughs> Indeed.
1: <laughs> which has really come out in this conversation Philip so If somebody would like to connect with you, what is the best way of doing that, Philip? And if they'd like to hear more about innovation engineering and what Eureka Europe does?
2: Well, probably the simplest thing is to, it sounds like we're making a plug for LinkedIn, right? But uh, (laughs) LinkedIn is probably a good place to begin. Otherwise, my email uh, would be philip1l with at eureka one Europe dot com or one word and uh, be delighted to hear from anybody really who's really wanting to even if they have an organization that is innovative very innovative uh wants to t- take it to the next level and actually make it a consistent repeatable process that um involves more people and makes more of of their organization's talent uh, because that's really what we're about is is helping people build their own innovation muscle
1: brilliant well i have thoroughly enjoyed that conversation and it's gone As all over the place i had never, no <laughs> idea i was going to end up on the coast of west africa looking for diamonds this morning so thank you <laughs> philip for that all before
2: break all before lunch yes yes, uh, well, yes. susan thank you very much for for the opportunity and the, the privilege of of joining um your many other podcastees if i can call them those and i look forward to to hearing that the, the final cut but Thanks again, Susan. Lovely speaking with you.
0: You're very welcome. Thank you, Philip. Goodbye.
2: Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first. And create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to Susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.